morning. That was a hearty good morning. Um, thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited that you're with us uh, this morning. We are in week three of a four-week run through the book of Jonah right now as a church. If you're new here, uh, rest assured that I'll give you a little bit of a, a brief recap. Um, but if you are new um, or if you um, have been around for a while, but maybe worked back in the kids' wing last Sunday or the Sunday before that, I would encourage you to go online and um, catch yourself up by way of the online uh, sermon podcast from the last couple weeks, especially in a four-week series when you miss one week even, um, you, you miss a great deal of the story. And so I would encourage you to do that and not just run off of my recaps every week. Um, if, if you are new, glad that you're here. Um, we're as we work through the book of Jonah, there are three reasons why we're going through this book of the Bible right now as a church. One of those is uh, because we get a strong dose of the character of God as we engage this particular story. We get to see God use creation as the stage upon which he displays his great sovereignty over all of creation from the greatest of, of sea creatures to the smallest of worms, which we'll see next week in chapter four. Um, God commands hurricanes. He, he commands the hearts of men. And so we get to see God's character on display. And um, whether you're a Christian or not, we're, we're always in need of a heavy dose of God's character. Um, I, I don't think I've said this yet in this series, but one of the keys, if you go back to January 3rd, I cast some vision for um, where I hope to see our church go, um, that we become a people who not only just uh, store up more and more biblical truth and content in our minds, um, but uh, can then see that work its way into our hearts when the battle ensues for our souls. And so let me give you an example. We encounter the sovereignty of God as you read the story of Jonah, and it would be very easy to then just tuck that away and go, okay, now I know that God is sovereign. I did not know that before. Or um, I did know that, but I didn't know the extent of God's sovereignty and providence as he works in creation and continues to, to write this story that he's been writing since before the foundations of the world. But you could just stop there and tuck it away and, and bookmark it as another theological piece of truth that you now own for yourself and never preach the sovereignty of God to yourself when circumstances um, go off the beaten path and you begin to question whether God's really in control. And so our hope as a church is that um, this becomes the content for you to then preach the gospel to yourself in those moments where you find the battle for your soul ensuing. That we, we don't want to be a church who just has good confessional theology, who just believes things at a, at a mind level, but rather a church who connects that confessional theology to our hearts in those moments where various um, anti-gospels uh, rear their ugly heads in our, in our lives. And so we see the character of God on display in a real way uh, in this book of the Bible. That's one reason we're going through the book of Jonah. Another reason that we're going through the book of Jonah uh, is that Jonah is a very religious man, grew up in a very religious subculture where the lines between religion and the gospel could easily get blurred. Um, we live in the Bible Belt, whether you want to or not, whether your job brought you here, you've grown up here your entire life, you now live in a world where the lines can easily get blurred between religion and the gospel. And so we want to unpack some of those subtle nuances between the two, and we've, we've done that a little bit in the first couple of weeks this book is very helpful as it pertains to that, that very issue. But number three, and this is going to be key this week for us, is we, we can oftentimes get caught up in the generalized world of, of God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that, that God is a world lover, or, or that God loves sinners but fail to connect the dots to the reality that Jesus died for me. 
Um, he, he has my name graven on his hands. Um, the, the idea that um, Jesus deeply loves particular Ninevite pagan barbarian sinners. And the reality is true for us this morning that there are particular people in the Southwest Corridor of Atlanta that, that Jesus is aiming for, that he's going after. And that may be you in this room this very morning. And so we wanna look at the reality that God deeply loves particular cities, real people. It's not just this generalized for God to love the world. Is that true? Yes and amen. John 3.16 is biblical, but, but we wanna ground it a little bit more than that. And we get to this morning as we look at this particular city of Nineveh um, and, and see a people experience great revival. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Jonah chapter three. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you nearby. You can open up to this morning's passage in one of those Bibles. Um, that Bible is yours as our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, take that with you. We are happy to know that you're exploring the truth claims of Christianity on your own. So, so please take that. Before we jump in, let me just give a brief recap. So when you, when you jump into the book of Jonah, it begins with the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah that, that God is not um, this deistic God that wound up the clock of human history and then just checked out on us, uh, doesn't care about how our stories unfold, but rather God stoops, he condescends to speak to his creation. And, and we see in Jonah chapter one uh, that God speaks to Jonah and tells Jonah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go east. I want you to go to the city of Nineveh and I want you to declare a message of repentance to them. Um, if they don't repent, judgment is coming their way. And Jonah says, are you crazy? I'm not going east. Don't you know, God, that those are some of the most barbaric people on the planet? Um, these are people who uh, use cruelty as a tool of psychological warfare. These are people who um, bury people up to their necks in the sand, in, in the desert heat, and allow them to be scorched to death. These are people who throw children in a furnace and make their parents watch. These are people for whom sex is their God. Um, I, I'm not going east. I don't want anything to do uh, with the repentance of such a barbaric people. And so Jonah goes west. He heads um, down to a port called Joppa to head west to Tarshish, which is uh, south Spain. Jonah essentially says, I'm not going. And it's not because he's scared. Um, it's not because uh, he doesn't believe that God can do a great work in the hearts of the Ninevites. It's because he is a bigoted, self-righteous, racist man. And we'll see that in chapter four next week as we um, unpack that final chapter of the story. And so Jonah goes west, gets on a ship. He's out upon the high seas and God loves his son so much that he hurls a tempest in his direction, a hurricane, that God will do that sometimes to get us back. He will hurl hurricanes in, into our stories to, to win us back. And so he does so, and um, Jonah acknowledges um, after much uh, effort to try to save themselves, these pagan sailors are trying to row for the shore, and they can't do it. They're crying out to their plethora of gods. No one's listening. They finally determine we've got to throw Jonah overboard, and they do. And last week, uh, I mentioned we, we kind of get the slow motion scene in the movie where the indie band starts playing in the background, and we get our contemplative opportunity to to think about our own lives. And, and so last week, we, we assessed ourselves in light of Jonah's prayer in chapter two. Um, Jonah declares two things with great clarity. That One, that um, he's far more sinful than he ever imagined that he could be, that God is freeing him from his self-righteousness. But he also acknowledges in the prayer in chapter two that he's far more loved and accepted by God than he could ever dare dream. 
And that's what we're trying to declare as a church. Uh, we we want to grow in, a, in an awareness of just how deep the sin problem runs, but not so that we can wallow there, but rather so that the cross of Jesus Christ looms that much larger for us, so that we don't have this stagnant Christianity where the cross just, just stays the same size for decades and we just coast on to our death, which is so very easy to do, especially in this land of, of cultural Christianity. And so we pick up the story in chapter 3 where Jonah has been vomited onto dry land. I'm sure he smells just delightful at this point as we engage in the story in chapter 3. And so let me pray for us as we jump into chapter 3 and get going this morning. God, thank you for the story of Jonah. I do pray that we would get a strong dose of your character this morning and that we would Put that away in our arsenal for a rainy day, for a day in which we need to be reminded that you are sovereign, for a day in which we need to be reminded that you are merciful and gracious. Um, God, I pray that you would help us to unravel the subtle nuances between religion and the gospel in our hearts this morning. And I pray that you would give us a vision for the mission that you have for us. God, you do love this city. Um, you do love people in this city, and uh, you... Uh, by your grace, use us as instruments of redemption to bring the gospel to bear in the lives of those um, that you've brought into our stories. Um, so w- would you do that this morning? All of those things, God. Uh, Holy Spirit, if you don't uh, come in power, uh, these are just words. So, so would you work in our hearts? Would you work in our minds um, in a powerful way this morning? God, we ask these things of you, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verses 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Remember chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. said, go east. Jonah went west. Here it comes a second time, and this is what God says. Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, before we go any further, you got to put yourself in Jonah's shoes for a second. Remember how chapter 2 ended? Jonah is declaring these things in the wake of his awakening, you might say. In verse 8 of chapter 2, he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, Jonah says, with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So, So Jonah says, I've made vows. I'll pay them. I'll make sacrifices to you, God. You're the one who's delivered me through the great fish. Remember in the Old Testament, a vow was made by going to the temple and making a sacrifice. So when you read verse 10 of chapter 2, leading into this morning's text, where it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. We should expect Jonah to to end up on a shore near Jerusalem. And we should expect Jonah to set his sights on, on Jerusalem. That that's where the story is surely going based on what Jonah says in chapter 2. But, but that's not what you get in the early verses of, of chapter 3 at all, right? God's call on Jonah's life doesn't change. Jonah says, I'll gladly go to Jerusalem and make sacrifices to you to pay vows to you, God. Why wouldn't Jonah want to do that? I mean, Jerusalem is Jonah's comfort zone after all, right? That's where he wanted to be throughout the course of this entire story in the first place. That if the story continued with God calling Jonah to go to Jerusalem at this point, I'm convinced that, that the disconnect, the internal conflict that Jonah is experiencing, um, that he's dealing with at a mind and heart level, disappears. Because he now gets what he wants. Because if that's how the story plays out, then 
That means that God's plan for Jonah's life for the first time in this story aligns with Jonah's plan for Jonah's life. And so I think that brings up a critical question for for us this morning. And the question is this, in what areas of your life do you feel internal tension because God's plan for your life doesn't align with your plan for your life? And, And some of us, I would imagine, feel that tension right now. You're in the middle of that. Um, you're, you're wrestling with that, um, that at a mind and heart level even right now as you sit in your chair this morning. For others of you, you just came out of a season like that where there was that internal conflict between God's plan for you and, and your plan for you. And for others of you, you're going, man, that's not my issue, but it might be tomorrow. And so we all need to wrestle with this text and ask ourselves this question. That The reality is there are times when we hear the words, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, Jeremiah 29. You can put it on a coffee cup. And those words bring us comfort. But there are other times when God declares, I know the plans I have for you, and those words frustrate us because God's plans don't align with with our plans. And so the question becomes, in what areas of your life do you need to grow in faith and trust that the Lord's got you? that he knows what's best for you. God God says in chapter three, verses one and two, no, I want you to go to Nineveh. That's still the plan. The plan has not changed. Um, This response from God reveals not just his sovereignty in declaring Jonah's steps, as we talk about a heavy dose of God's character this morning, you don't just see his sovereignty on display in directing Jonah to go to Nineveh, but you also see the riches of God's mercy and grace. And you see it both to religious and to irreligious people. To religious Jonah, God says, let's give it another shot. I'm the God of second chances. I'm not a cruel taskmaster waiting to smite you when you mess up. I'm not sitting back with a, an arsenal of lightning bolts ready, ready to fire them at you every time you blow it. I'm your father. You're my child. I know what's best for you. You ran away from uh, my best for you, so I did what I had to do to get you back, and I'm sticking to my guns. Going to Nineveh is my best for you, Jonah, so here's a second chance. This is the God of mercy and grace toward religious Jonah, but it's also the God of mercy and grace to irreligious Nineveh, to whom God says, I'm coming, you bunch of undeserving barbarians and sex addicts. And even a racist, bigoted pastor can't stop me from getting to you. And it's what I do, God says. I I turn sinners into saints. I turn blasphemers and barbarians into believers. That's what God does. That's the heart of God. Where do you see yourself in this story this morning as you engage this particular passage? Where do you need to be reminded of the mercy and grace of God? Are are you religious Jonah, finding your identity in religious things, but missing God in all of it? It's very easy to do, especially in this subculture that we live in. Patting yourself on the back when you check all the right boxes, finding yourself in the land of despair when you fail to do everything right according to to God's commands every time you mess up? Or are you irreligious Nineveh, far from God, attempting to write your own story rather than submitting to the one true author, God himself, making a God out of everything but God, like the Ninevites? See, the reality is God's grace is enough for you, no matter which of those camps you fall into, no matter what your story is this morning. His grace is enough for all of the religious Jonas in this room and all of the irreligious Ninevites 
His grace is big enough for all of us. He loves to save. He loves to forgive. We've seen that just threaded throughout this entire story up to this point. Verse 3, we get Jonah's declaration. So Jonah arose in light of God's command and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. A couple of things that I think we need to see in verses three and four. Number one, um, Jonah's declaration is directed toward the population of an exceedingly great city that to walk the perimeter of Nineveh would have been a 60-mile trek. That's insane. You'd be tired after you, you made that journey, right? But the walls surrounding the city of Nineveh were 10 stories high. 100 feet high, and the walls were so wide that you could fit three chariots side by side on top of those walls and run them at the same time. The city was so big that it took over a million people to build it. God loves cities. Um, Tim Keller, church planner up in New York City, uh, has coined this phrase, as the city goes, so goes the culture, that if you can impact the cities. Um, that, that you're going to then impact the outlying areas that extend out beyond the cities. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Metro Atlanta is one of the top 10 largest metropolitan areas in the U.S. As the city goes, so goes the culture. Cross Point Peachtree City, if you weren't aware, was planted with the dream of pointing people all across this city to Jesus I would love, I would love for our congregation to be the first of many. Um, for those of you who don't know, our, we're one church, six congregations at this point. Five of those congregations are down in the Orlando area. Um, first one started about 15 years ago, and multiplication just happened by God's grace. Um, we're, we're kind of a, a guinea pig, a prototype here in the city of Atlanta to test the waters and see if that can happen again for the glory of God. And so my prayer is that God would bring godly men who love the city of Atlanta and have a heart for church planting because we're ready to train them tomorrow. We, we have the resources in place to begin that process tomorrow by God's grace. As soon as God brings them, we're, we're ready to, to get on with the show and make that happen. But here's the reality. For most of us, that's not uh, where our minds go when we think about reaching people for the sake of the gospel. The reality is it starts in our own backyard. So let me bring it a little closer to home. And for some of you, this might be mind-blowing, especially if you hang out only at Starbucks and Chick-fil-A where Christians all collectively gather. This might blow your mind. Did you know that since the turn of the millennium, so since the year 2000 in Fayette County, those professing to have no religious affiliation has tripled from 12,000 to 36,000 people. In Coweta County, since the turn of the millennium, since the year 2000, those professing to have no religious affiliation has jumped from 44,000 to 68,000. What that means is that in both of those counties combined, which is where most of us reside, where most of us live our lives, more than 100,000 people profess to have no religious affiliation. And that doesn't even take into account all of the Southern cultural Christians who do inhabit the walls of buildings like this on any given Sunday, who don't truly know Jesus and are just checking off the boxes of moralism as they go. There's a great work to be done in this city. The harvest is unbelievably plentiful. And and you and I, as the church, have a great privilege to engage in that, to be a part of that. 
It starts in our own backyard. We'll get back to that in, in just a moment, but let me continue on. There's a second thing that I think we need to see in, in verses three and four, and it's this, that Jonah's declaration is one of judgment. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That 40 days reminds us of the length of the flood in Noah's day associated with judgment. The, the word overthrown that you see in this verse is the same word used in the account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Anyone remember that story? When, when God was finished, the city was nothing more than a, a pile of rubble and ash. That Nineveh is another Sodom. That's the language that's being used in Jonah's declaration. That this simple statement from Jonah's mouth is meant to make clear that God must punish sin. It's, it's something that even Christians are fearful to engage, to bring to the forefront of, of the conversation. Um, we want to lean in the direction of God as a loving father, and that's critical. We, we've got to hold on to that and not discard that. That we see God as a loving father in his relentless pursuit of Jonah in the first couple chapters of this story. He pursues him like a father would pursue his son. There's no question about that. He loved Jonah enough to hurl a hurricane at him to win him back. God is absolutely a loving father, but he's also a just judge. If he sweeps sin under the rug as though it never happened, he should be disbarred from the bench. He's a really bad judge. It would be the divine equivalent of a human judge um, responding to the crimes of a child molester and just sweeping those crimes under the rug um, just because. That judge would be removed from the bench, would he not? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you Facebook on that one? If you heard about that, wouldn't you respond via message and say, I don't want to live in a, in a community where judges respond that way and just let child molesters off the hook to live in my neighborhood? That's how I think we would typically re would, would respond. Um, and you've got to remember that uh, Nineveh was the center of a pagan cult of fertility worship. Sex was, was a god for these people. Again, these are people who buried men and women up to their necks in the sand and allowed them to be scorched to death in the heat of the desert sun. These are people who threw children into a furnace and made mom and dad watch. These are people who um, skinned people alive and, and saw who could keep them alive the longest as a contest. That's how pagan, that's how barbaric these people actually are. If you were around in Jonah's day, you, you would have no problem with justice being served to these guys. No problem whatsoever. But in general, we tend to bucket the idea of God's justice. We like it when it pertains to other people who have wronged us, but we don't like to look inwardly and to deal with um, the justice of God as it pertains to our own lives. But this is, this is precisely why the cross of Jesus Christ matters, why the cross of Jesus Christ is compelling and beautiful, because Jesus pays the penalty for our crimes and God is vindicated as both a loving father and a just good judge who doesn't sweep crimes under the rug. That the cross is the place where God's mercy and justice collide with one another, you might say. That God extends his mercy as he punishes our crimes in Jesus. That's the gospel. Jonah proclaims this message of judgment upon a sinful people. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now look at the response of the Ninevites. This is insane. Verses five through eight. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh 
quote, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This is revival, okay? Jonah speaks a total of eight words in the English language, five if you're looking at the original Hebrew language, and you see a city turned upside down on its head by God's grace. Let me point out just a few things in these verses that I think are important for us. Number one, salvation comes through proclamation, that repentance comes to this city as a result of a follower of the Lord proclaiming the word of the Lord, that people don't become Christians because we're nice people. Does it matter the way we live our lives? Absolutely, it matters. But um, if we only live gospel-centered lives but never proclaim the gospel, people will never know that it's Jesus who compels us to live the way that we do. In fact, we've talked about this before. There are people who are adherents of other world religions who do it a lot better than we do if you're looking at externals, right? And so the charge here is proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Don't, don't beat it over people's heads without discretion, but don't be afraid to tell people about the king whose kingdom you belong to. We have no problem telling people about other aspects of our lives. Um, I, you could find out in a matter of minutes who my favorite college football team is. I own coffee mugs. I post pictures of them during the season on random Saturday mornings. Um, I post articles as things unfold in the season. Uh, you, you have no problem if you engage with me in a conversation long enough to find out who my favorite bands are or what my favorite movies are as I've engaged those over um, the course of the, of the last few months or um, dating back to however far you want to go in terms of likes and dislikes in those areas. We have no problem declaring the things that we love, but for some reason there's a disconnect when it comes to, to Jesus and talking about who we love and who we follow and who has redeemed us. Jonah opens his mouth, and we see the people of Nineveh are cut to the heart. It says in verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. I mean, that's about as simple as it gets, right? They didn't think about it. They, they didn't go on a journey of personal discovery and soul searching. Um, they simply came to face with the fact that they were um, criminals in God's cosmic courtroom and that God wouldn't, he couldn't allow them to just go off the hook um, to get away with it. They came face to face with the fact that the punishment would fit the crime, that destruction was on the horizon for them and that led them to turn to God. The cry became that of the, the tax collector in Jesus' parable in Luke 18, the simple cry, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a fundamental element of conversion for the non-Christian, but it's also a fundamental element of Christian growth if you are a follower of Jesus. The, the scripture's revealing to us that we are more sinful than we ever imagined, but yet we're far more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared dream. Um, Sinclair Ferguson in his commentary says this. He says, such illumination is glorious, but it can be frightening. It exposes the needs in our hearts and the sin in our lives that we never knew existed. But it is also glorious because the light which falls can bring comfort and healing to us. God in his infinite knowledge and perfect wisdom not only touches our inmost being, but he also unravels his grace, pours in the medicinal balm of his love, and points us in the way we should go. 
He penetrates through the soul and the spirit. It's what the author of Hebrews meant in chapter 4, verse 12, when he said this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That we should be experiencing that regularly in our lives, that yes, we do see this as a moment of conversion for many of these pagan Ninevites, but, but you just, the rest of the Christian life is just more of the same. It, it's growing in an awareness of, again, just how deep the sin problem runs and just how glorious the grace of God is in light of that. That, oh, I, I thought he saved this guy, but really he saved this guy as it pertains to the reality of just how sinful I am. And that means the cross of Jesus Christ has that much more power in my life. Jonah brings the word of the Lord to pagan Nineveh, and the people repent. And there's a second point that I think is crucial in terms of looking at their repentance um, and and what God does in this city. Number two, God is sovereign over salvation. That um, The reality is, and if you fast forward, you you look at the beginning of chapter 1, you see this. Jonah could care less if these pagans repent. He, he really could care less. In fact, you'll see him sitting in a lawn chair, so to speak, outside the city, just waiting for the fireworks of destruction to go off as this story comes to a close, that he's still a work in progress. Yes, God did something in the belly of the great fish in chapter two, but Jonah is still a slow work of progressive sanctification as a follower of God. That Jonah could care less if these people are actually saved. Um, in fact, he preferred destruction in the end. And not only that, not only is his heart still not really engaged in the mission before him, on top of his absentee heart, Jonah speaks a total of eight words. Again, five in the original Hebrew. And and people turn to God. If that doesn't make clear that you don't have to be a perfect missionary, a perfect evangelist, I don't know what will, will clue you in on that. That we have the mindset that says, as soon, as soon as I become more competent in my understanding of the gospel, then I'll point people to Jesus as soon as I master the gospel. To, to be crystal clear, we as Christians, you and I are never going to master the gospel. The rest of our lives, we're going to be more and more mastered by the gospel. That's how the gospel works. So the, the cry is to tell people about Jesus now, even in the midst of your inadequacies. Remember, you're a Christian because you're not perfect. Right? If, you, if you're going for perfection, go join any of the other world religions that try to outweigh bad deeds with good ones. But if you're a Christian, it's because you realize that you can't do it. You can't earn God's favor. You can't claw your way into his good graces. He had to condescend and come to you to enter into your story, to enter into human history, to live the life that you couldn't live, to die the death that you and I deserve to die. That's what the gospel tells us. You're a Christian not because you're perfect. You're a Christian because Jesus is perfect for you. If God wants to save someone, he's gonna do it despite your inadequacies. The mission is for today, if you're a follower of Jesus. Let me give you a couple more things that I think are important coming out of verses five through eight. Number three, true belief is inseparable from repentance. Look at verse five. And the people of Nineveh believed God. So you have belief, you have faith. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. If you fast forward to verse 8, we're told the king says, let everyone turn from his evil way. That's the language of repentance. And from the violence that is in his hands. Um, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Easy believism is a great danger in the church. 
the idea that I made a decision for Jesus, so I'm good to go. I'll just coast until I die because I can bank on that summer camp experience when I was 13. And there's a lot of that in our context. Not only is that inaccurate, it's completely unbiblical. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that you can make a profession of faith, go the rest of your life without a reorientation of of your thoughts, of your affections, of your will, and be good to go in the end. And and listen, I'm not saying that sanctification comes quick for all of us as followers of Jesus. Um, Some of us are gruelingly slow works of progress as God uproots idols in our lives and frees us slowly but surely from our self-righteousness and other forms of sin. But what I am saying is that sanctification comes even if it is gruelingly slow. I gave this, uh, this word picture during the First Corinthians series back in the spring. If you were with us, I said, um, becoming a Christian is, is like this. If you could kind of envision this picture in your mind, the Holy Spirit comes plowing through the walls of your kingdom like a Sherman tank and, and makes a beeline for the castle and, and immediately looks for the throne. And when he finds the throne and sees you sitting on it, he promptly executes you so that Jesus can take his rightful throne in your life. That that's what conversion looks like, um, if you could think of it in, in that kind of word picture. But then the reality is this, that for the rest of your life, um, the, the people on the ground in your kingdom, so to speak, Um, the flesh, doesn't like that there's a new king in town. And so flags of dominion are slowly planted, but there's a battle that ensues for the rest of your life in certain areas, in certain domains of your life, so that sometimes it's slow, sometimes flags are planted quickly, but the reality is that if you're a Christian, you should be able to look out and see some flags. Whether they're only a couple, whether, you know, whether God is just blown you know, through with a wind of grace in your life and you just look around and go, man, there are flags everywhere. Um, I'm probably more like the first of those two. I am a stubborn, slow work in progress. But looking out, I do see flags that, that affirm that the Holy Spirit is working in my life, that I'm being freed from, from idols, from sin and unbelief. That you could say, uh, if your life looks no different than it, than it did before you made a decision, quote unquote, to follow Jesus. I mean, I'd begin to ask the question, am I a Christian or have I bought into this cultural lie of easy believism? There's a famous 19th century Scottish minister named uh, John uh, Cahoon uh, who says this. He says, the tears of godly sorrow drop from the eyes of faith. That you can't separate the two. That, that faith and, and sorrow slash repentance, they just go hand in hand. They, they're inseparable from one another. And then lastly, as it pertains to verses five through eight, I think this is critical to see as well, that true repentance is inseparable from humility. If you look at verse five, from the greatest of them to the least of them, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from the throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes, that the prideful king of the great Assyrian empire humbles himself. And this is even more amazing. Verse seven, he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. He's making repentance public knowledge, again, showing humility to a great degree. And he says this in this uh, proclamation of his. The king says, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, uh, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This is one of the most remarkable accounts in human history of a pagan people turning to God. I mean, it would be the modern day 
equivalent to a Christian going over to Syria, over to Iraq, and calling members of ISIS to stop sinning. And, and doing it with a declarative, simple word and, and seeing that regime turned upside down on its head in repentance. That's what it would be the equivalent to. Let me ask you this. When, when you think about God's mission as it pertains to us, what do you envision when you think about God saving people here? Is it a, a vision that would require God to actually accomplish it? Is, is it a God-sized vision? I really do, let me just give you my heart in terms of my vision for, for just a moment. Um, I really do believe that God can bring a great awakening to the Bible Belt, where droves of people are inoculated to Jesus. We've talked about this, this idea of being inoculated to Jesus before. A um, good example of inoculation would be a flu shot. Um, you get just enough of a strand of the virus so that your body can learn to fight off the real thing when it shows up. That's what inoculation is. And I've said this before. Sadly, many Christians in our context are inoculated to Jesus. They've got just enough of Jesus to feel like they don't really need him, if that makes sense. That many in our context believe they're experiencing the power of the gospel when they're not. They got a mild form of the gospel somewhere along the way, just enough for their soul to fight off the real strand whenever it shows up. And that's why it's possible to sit in a seat for months, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and never see the cross loom larger in our lives. Our souls go into immunization mode when, when Jesus um, is brought to us by form of a new injection of the gospel, you might say, that we're good with a mild form of the gospel, just enough to feel good about ourselves. And so my vision, my dream, is that God would bring a great awakening to the Bible Belt, that he would breathe life into the Bible Belt, this place that's now been deemed the boneyard of Christianity, which is why you see those statistics, by the way. You look around and you go, wait, looks like there are churches everywhere. Looks like there's great life in the Bible Belt as it pertains to Christianity. But the reality is the buildings don't um, uh, allow us to see a true measure of the work of the gospel in, in the Bible Belt, that um, the, the churches are slowly turning into mausoleums. We've already seen it happen in Europe. We're now seeing it happen in bigger cities outside of the Bible Belt cities like Philadelphia. Uh, I've shared this with you before. Um, those of you who have been around for a while that uh, I went on a trip to Philadelphia and uh, got to see inner, the inner city and um, saw a number of amazing cathedrals. Um, and upon asking just a few questions, learned that most of those cathedrals now function as heroin hospitals because the church um, flew to the suburbs and abandoned the city. And it's now starting to bleed into the Bible Belt, this land that we thought was safe from that. And so now people who profess to have no affiliation religiously is, is increasing by the moment. My dream is that God would breathe life back into the Bible Belt, that we would see um, that steady incline of people with no religious affiliation begin to become a decline as the gospel begins to penetrate the culture in that particular demo demographic. Um, my, my dream, my vision is also that God would awaken cultural Christians from their drunken stupor. I mean, we live in that world where you can so easily just check your boxes and have no awakening in the midst of all of that. My dream is that God would stir the hearts of all of those who are jaded toward the church. You met anybody like that in the Bible Belt? Somebody who had a bad run with the church and now the response is, man, I, I got no problem with Jesus. But his bride, I don't want anything to do with her. 
I have a dream that, that God would bring those two together in people's hearts so that people don't just love Jesus, but they love the, the church that Jesus bled and died for along with Jesus. The reality, as I think about my dream, is I think it's going to take a greater work than it took in the city of Nineveh to accomplish. Because pagan Nineveh, I would describe on a scale of 1 to 10 as it pertains to, to gospel understanding, they'd be a zero. Jonah comes in with a blank slate and declares the reality of the character and presence and promises of God, and they respond. The Bible Belt is a negative eight. You gotta deconstruct a bunch of mess to get to zero in the first place to then declare a gospel that matters to people. God's fully capable of doing it. He's the king. He can. Um, You see that in verse nine. If you look at verse nine, this is an amazing declaration. The king of Nineveh says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Um, Notice that it doesn't say that God will relent or that he's obligated to relent. The king um, allows matters of justice and mercy um, to be at, at God's dispensing. This is a human king acknowledging that he's at the mercy of a divine king. And remember, this is an exceedingly great city. If ever there was a king who should think to himself, I don't have to bend my knee to anyone, it would be this particular king. And yet, he responds in humility. And here's the best news of it all. This human king who's at the mercy of the divine king knows that the divine king is not a tyrant. Look at verse 10 as we close this morning. When God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Does this make God a deceitful liar? I mean, didn't he say to Jonah, uh, 40 days and destruction is coming to these people? It's important to note that when God spoke to the uh, prophets uh, and through the prophets in the Old Testament, it was most oftentimes with a condition attached so that you see um, passages like this, Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8. Uh, it's up on the screen. It says, If at any time, this is God speaking, I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, we see that in Nineveh, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. That This is the heart of God. Like I said last week, God loves to save. God loves to deliver. That the phrase, yet 40 days, in verse two, is God's mercy. That some of us need, need to hear that we're in a season of, quote unquote, yet 40 days. That, that we're in a season in which God is unbelievably patient with us. And now is the time to repent, to turn to Jesus before the 40 days is up and the destruction comes that was coming Nineveh's way. God is incredibly merciful. In this chapter, we, we see so clearly God save a bunch of undeserving barbarians and sex addicts, and it just simply sets the stage for the Gospels because isn't that what you see tattooed across the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? A Jesus who enters the world and, and doesn't enter the world to hang out with the religious elite, but rather to chase after pagan Nineveh. You, you see it. And you continue to see it as Jesus builds his church. He's coming after those who would never love him, not those who think they have their act completely together. 
that the heart of God is for those who acknowledge that apart from his grace, they will be overthrown, just like Nineveh. The heart of God is for those who acknowledge that they can't save themselves and they're deeply in need of a savior, that you and I are Nineveh, that apart from Jesus, we deserve to be overthrown. That's the verdict of a good, righteous judge. But thanks be to God that Jesus was overthrown for us at the cross so that we might be delivered, just like Nineveh. And the reality is, if you're a Christian, that's the message that you get to go and share with people. In a moment, we're gonna take communion. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. Um, we take communion here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. Um, as you prepare to come take communion uh, over the next few minutes, uh, I would encourage you to, to just sit with the reality of God's great mercy. E even that simple phrase, yet 40 days. Think about when you weren't a Christian and you were in your season of yet 40 days, how God was so patient with you and brought the beauty of the gospel to bear in your life, just like the, the life of uh, these pagan Ninevites, so that you might be freed, so that you might be delivered. And then come and take the bread and dip it in the cup, remembering who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Um, if you're not a Christian, um, I've said this every week of this series up to this point, that my hope for you is that you, just like all of us Christians in the room, would get a heavy dose of God's character, um, that he is sovereign, he is control, in control of your story, um, but he is also merciful and, and gracious and good, and he is in a relentless pursuit of you, just like he was Jonah, just like he was the people of Nineveh. And my hope is that today would be the day that you turn to Jesus and come take communion as a member of the family of God for the first time. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.